Welcome to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on September 13th, 2015, on the basis of Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. Are you sure about that? Go ahead and be seated. Are you sure about what you just said? Do you think I'm sure about what I just said? You see, I read those words of Jesus, and just like I always do after we read the words of Jesus, I said the gospel of the Lord. You know what that word gospel means, right? It's kind of a requirement if you're going to attend this church. Because, of course, the word gospel means good news. Yeah, what our church is named after. So I said the gospel of the Lord, and then you said, as you always do, praise be to you, O Christ. So let's think about this for a minute. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you better hate your father and mother, your wife and your children, even your own life. You better be ready to give up absolutely everything. And then I say, hey, everybody, this is great news. And you say, praise be to Jesus. Do we really mean it? It seems even a little bit more ridiculous when we consider what Luke tells us right at the very beginning that at this point, large crowds of people were traveling with Jesus. And this has kind of been a recurring theme that we've seen throughout this series, that at this point in his ministry, Jesus was still incredibly popular. He was leading in all of the polls. He was the front runner for being elected Israel's long-awaited Messiah. And then he turns to crowds of people, crowds of adoring fans, and he says this. Not only does it not seem like good news, it seems like one of those embarrassing, fatal gaffes that politicians sometimes make as they are running for office. Like back in 2000, when then-candidate Al Gore claimed that he had invented the Internet. Like in 2008, when candidate Sarah Palin responded to a very serious question about foreign policy by saying, you know, I can see Russia from my house in Alaska. Like in 2012, when candidate Mitt Romney talked about how in his office he has all kinds of binders full of women, whatever that means. Kind of makes you look forward to what we might hear in 2016, right? Are Jesus' words nothing more than that? Are they really good news or are they one of these embarrassing political gaps as Jesus is on the campaign trail? That's what we'll be considering this morning, specifically looking at three important questions. First of all, what in the world is Jesus saying in these verses? Second of all, why did he say it? And then third of all, how should we respond? I'm guessing that as I read those words, there was one in particular that stuck out above the rest. That word hate. Such a strong word, it grabs our attention anytime that we hear it, and we associate hate with the very highest form of evil, right? When we think of hate, we think of terrorists flying airplanes into skyscrapers. Well, when the Bible uses the word hate, it actually means something considerably different. Most of the time when the Bible uses that word hate, it's not the opposite of love, that word hate is actually the opposite of a Greek word philia. 
That's where we get words like philanthropy and Philadelphia from, the Greek word philia. And it's a little bit confusing because very often that word is actually translated love, but it's probably better translated something like affinity or attraction. In other words, if you have philia for another human being, it simply means that maybe your personalities really click. You really get along. Maybe you have shared interests. Maybe you have the same unique sense of humor. Maybe you even share the same blood. There's a very natural, visceral, instinctual attraction that you have toward that other person. Well, hate, as Jesus uses the word here, is just the opposite of that. Not attraction, but aversion. Not delight, but disgust. So philia might be how some of you would feel about the idea of sitting down on the couch this afternoon for about three hours in front of a giant flat screen TV with a big plate of hot wings. And hate, as Jesus uses it here, is probably how most of us would feel about going to the dentist to get a root canal. Philia versus hate. Sounds simple enough until we remember exactly whom Jesus tells us that we are supposed to hate. Father and mother, brother and sister, wife and children, even our own life. In other words, the people that naturally probably cause the most attraction in us are the people that are supposed to be causing the most aversion. The people that normally bring us the most delight may very well bring us the most disgust. Why? Well, it's if and when those people come between us and our love for Jesus Christ. So let's start where Jesus started. Children, say mom and dad bring you to church and bring you to Sunday school often enough, but by their words and by their actions, they make it very clear that this whole church thing, this whole religion thing is something that at some point you just kind of grow out of. As much as you will always love your parents, that ought to disgust you. Parents, say your children, your pride and joy, they grow up and they stop coming to church. They pursue sinful lifestyles. They maybe even abandon or renounce their faith altogether. As much as you will always love them, that behavior will disgust you. Spouses, say your, your, the love of your life, your best friend, your lifelong companion says to you, honey, if you want to do that whole church thing, that's great, go ahead, but I'm getting kind of sick and tired about how much time and how much money it is costing this family. As much as you will always love your spouse, that behavior will disgust you. Following Jesus simply means that anything that comes in between us and our love for Jesus will make our stomach turn. Following Jesus means that things that would normally bring us the greatest delight may very well bring us the greatest disgust. And it goes both ways. Jesus went on to say, Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. 
We need to understand that in Jesus' day, this symbol, this cross, was synonymous with shame, torture, and oppressive tyranny. It was the preferred method of execution carried out only against the worst of criminals by the hated Roman government. And so when people saw that symbol, when they thought of that symbol, it was instant disgust. Jesus uses that symbol to tell us, as his followers, that each one of us will have a cross. Our own unique mixture, our own personal concoction of shame and pain and oppression that will come to us for following Jesus. Things in our lives that will be more difficult for no other reason than that we are disciples of Jesus. And rather than that causing us to want to run away from those things, Jesus says that we should embrace them, that we should be willing to take up that cross as we follow him. So this is what Jesus is saying in these verses. Following Jesus means that things that would normally bring us great delight may very well bring us great disgust. And that things that would normally bring us great disgust can and will bring us great delight. So why does Jesus say it? Again, keep in mind how popular he is at this moment in time. Why ruin that by saying these difficult, challenging things? In fact, part of me thought that as we started to talk about these verses today, I should have the usher go back and lock the door to keep anyone from running out upon hearing what Jesus has to say to us here. Not very fun to think about. Why does Jesus say it? Well, Jesus answers that question. He says, let's imagine that someone is setting out to build a tower. Someone wants to build the tallest skyscraper ever built. Will he not sit down beforehand with the blueprints? and carefully estimate and calculate exactly what it will cost him to do so. And if he doesn't, no sooner will he start that project than he will run out of money. And then with an unfinished tower, he will be the laughingstock of the entire community. Or let's imagine that there's a king who wants to go off and make war against another king. Will he not first sit down and compare the size of his army to the size of his enemies? And if he realizes that he is outnumbered, Rather than issuing those marching orders, will he not wave the white flag of surrender? Jesus' simple point is this. The time to think, the time to count the cost, the time to carefully weigh risk versus reward is ahead of time, not after the fact. And the very same thing is true as we think about following him. Let's imagine for a moment that we as a church started sending this message out to the world around us. Look, the only thing that God wants from you is that for one hour a week, your seat is in one of these seats, and then, and then that's it. The rest of your time is yours. All of your money can stay yours. You can do whatever you want as long as you do that. And then, because God will be so happy with you, you can ask him for anything that you want in life. And because he loves you so much, he will give it to you. And in general, your life will just get a whole lot easier and a whole lot better for following Jesus. Would that cause some people to come in and hear more? Maybe, perhaps. But of course, they'll quickly find out that that's not what following Jesus is really like. 
In fact, following Jesus is often the exact opposite as that. And because they had no idea going in, they'll be out the door just as quickly as they came in, probably never to return. You see, Jesus won't use any bait and switch tactics with those who would follow him. He wants us to know up front exactly what it means. So that's what Jesus is saying. That's why he says it. And that's really the end of what Jesus says in these verses, leaving us with the all-important question, how will we respond? At first glance, we might assume that there are really only two ways that anyone would ever respond to such shocking words as this. On the one hand, some people might hear these words and think, no thanks. If that's what following Jesus is like, that's not for me. I don't want anything to do with it. I'm just going to go live my life the way I've been living it. It's kind of like that king in the parable Jesus told, who, who before even starting the war decides to surrender. Maybe there have been times in your life where, where words like this from Jesus caused that sort of reaction. And if so, it's understandable. On the other hand, other people might say, well, sure, I'll follow Jesus. I mean, after all, that's what I'm supposed to do. I know that's the right thing. That's what my family does. That's what I was brought up in. That's what I want my kids to be brought up with. If I didn't follow Jesus, I would feel too bad about it. But all the while, inwardly, they're saying, I can cheat the system. I can be the exception. I can follow Jesus without having to worry about any of these difficult things that he says here. That's sort of like the man who started to build the tower, but hadn't really calculated everything that it would require. And I'm guessing there have been times in all of our lives where words like this from Jesus have caused that sort of reaction. Now, we might think that, that those are the only two reasonable reactions to these seemingly unreasonable words from our Savior Jesus here. But I'm going to suggest to you today that there's a third reaction, the one, of course, that Jesus wants us to have. You see, in these verses, Jesus is really leading us to picture our relationship with him sort of as one of those old-fashioned scales where one side of the scale is balanced against what's on the other side of the scale. And in these verses, Jesus describes in very stark, very surprising detail what's on the one side of the scale. If you are going to follow me, here's what it might cost you. Here's everything that you might have to give up. Here's all of the pain and difficulty that might cause in your life. But by doing so, Jesus is begging with us, pleading with us to ask ourselves this question. If that's what's on this side of the scale, what could possibly be over there? If this is everything that Jesus is telling me I might be losing, what in the world might he be promising that I will be gaining? And even though he doesn't say it here, we, of course, know the answer. You see, Jesus didn't just come to talk about this way of life. He came to live this way of life. Think about the, the philia, the attraction that Jesus had to his perfect home in heaven and his cushy throne at the Father's right hand. The ultimate place to be. And yet, in a very real way, Jesus showed hatred toward that spot. He left it 
behind. He came down to this earth because he loved us so much. Jesus considered his own personal cross the ultimate example of shame and torture and oppression. And he embraced it. He willingly took it up to pay for our sins. By doing so, Jesus won for you and me forgiveness for all of our sins, victory over death and the devil, and eternal life in heaven. Those belong to every single person who puts their trust in Jesus. And so really by highlighting everything that's over on this side of the scale, everything that we might lose for following Jesus, Jesus makes all that we will gain that much greater and that much sweeter. Maybe think of it this way. Imagine yourself sitting down on the couch this afternoon in front of that big flat screen TV with that big plate of wings. And all of a sudden your wife says to you, you know, honey, I know you're watching football today, but, but if you could just do me one favor, if you could stand up, take this bag out to the garage, out to the trash can, throw it away, and then walk all the way back in and sit back down on the couch, I would just be, I would be so grateful. That would be the greatest thing in the world. And I would show my appreciation for you by giving you a name, by giving you a title. For the rest of your life, everyone would know how great you are because I would call you an iron man. Be kind of silly, wouldn't it? But imagine, on the other hand, if someone said, you know, for the better part of the next year, you will have to wake up before the sun comes up. You will have to be awake while the rest of the world is sleeping. And you will have to give hours and hours of your free time to go through strenuous training regimens, all leading up to one big day, a day on which you will have to push yourself harder than you ever have before, probably for 15 straight hours. You will have to ignore immense pain. And when everything inside of you says that you should quit, you will need to keep going. But if you do, if you cross that finish line, you will get a title that indicates what you have accomplished. For the rest of your life, you will be known as an Iron Man. It's pretty easy to see that in those two completely different situations, the very same title would mean two completely different things. And the amount of sacrifice, the amount of sweat, the amount of pain that goes into each one directly determines how much that designation would mean. So yes, in these verses, Jesus highlights in surprising detail everything that following him might cost us. Those who are supposed to bring you great delight might bring you great disgust. That which should bring you great disgust ought to bring you great delight. Here's what you have to lose. Here's what you might give up. But by calling attention to all of that, Jesus is demanding that we spend some time thinking about what's on the other side of that scale. Everything that he guarantees we will gain as a result of following him. Forgiveness, life, heaven. So no, this isn't some political gaffe. Even these words from Jesus are good news. And so when we read them, as I always do, I can say the gospel of our Lord. And after I do, you can respond as you always do. Praise be to you, O Christ. Amen. 
For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org.